I want to direct your hearts back to the same title we had last Sunday, The Behavior of Christ's Body. This is our second teaching on that topic. And as I opened last teaching with pointing to a particular work of the Lord Jesus in an island by the name of Crete within the Mediterranean Sea, I confirm that we, indeed, this afternoon will be looking particularly into Titus chapter 2, and we will be taking in the pastoral instruction that the Apostle directed to his understudy, Titus, so that he could address some of the very real needs that were present in the Christian churches in Crete. But we've already established through our teaching last Sunday that the reason why it was so important for the Cretan saints to understand what they needed in order to be more Christ-like is because the very definition of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is that it would manifest the life and character of their Lord. It's a very straightforward idea, but nonetheless, it's something that we can never let elude our attention. And it evidently had eluded the attention of some within the Cretan churches. So as it relates to the behavior of Christ's body, we established last Sunday that with respect to Jesus himself in his incarnation, Anyone who wanted to see what Christ's body should look like had only to find Jesus himself. And you would have a perfect demonstration under any circumstances as to what the Father wants a human life to look like. But upon Jesus' ascension, the divine plan ordained that the Spirit of God would fill the upper room where the disciples were gathered so as to empower them to continue to do and to teach that which Jesus began to do and to teach. And Paul makes a statement in 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 27 that is very apropos for our topic. And indeed, as stated last Sunday, flows very nicely when one thinks about the fact that Jesus' body ascended up into the heights of heaven. We read in 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 27, Now, given Jesus' ascension, ye are the body of Christ and members in particular. Now, certainly we are not although some like to use this term in various configurations, and I'm not addressing that technical conversation when I state, I'm not saying that we're the mystical body in the sense that we are something akin to Jesus, a new incarnation of the Logos in some sort of direct fashion. Yet nonetheless, analogically, dear brothers and sisters, the example of Christ and the beautiful perfection of how the Logos, the Word of God, who is a person, but nonetheless, it is also an embodiment of the truth of God, how that Jesus physical body lived out the word of God in the way in which he did and has left us an example that now we as Christians are to follow in his steps 
I am stating that while, of course, we do not take up the exact same role in the exact same breath as the single individual the Lord Jesus Christ did, but as we also see in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the body is no longer one, but many members. And therefore, what we're stating is that God has ordained that wherever there is a church, wherever wherever there is a gathering of born-again individuals who now are to be transformed into the image of Him that created Him, that are to no longer lie to one another, that are no longer to steal, that are no longer to exercise any of the old man ways as God gives us grace so that we can manifest the newness of Jesus Christ through our life. Then, dear brothers and sisters, churches of Jesus Christ are to be the body of Jesus, whereby there is a witness that is at least approximating and striving toward growing up into the head in all things, even Jesus Christ, so that the sum total of the various gifts and blessings and developments that we have as the assembly of the Lord Jesus Christ, when you put it all together and when we all yield to the Spirit, then God begins to orchestrate something very beautiful such that the very family of God itself, that is to say the local church, but then by extension its witness begins to shine and begins to bring forth the warmth and beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ to the community so that in a very real way, indeed a biblical way, I am using the language of Scripture, that the body of Christ is still being witnessed to in our day. So as it relates to the Cretans, I'd like you to turn to what I stated could be termed the letter of the Apostle Paul to the Cretans, but he sort of mediates it through Titus, which is to say, well, he says, I left you in Crete, so maybe they had recently been to the island in one of their journeys that wasn't recorded in the book of Acts. Or it could be that Paul was elsewhere and his language of left you in Crete simply means that he directed Titus to go to Crete and stay there. But um, we're looking into Paul's letter to Titus because it's all about addressing this group of Christians on this island called Crete. And indeed, we read in the fifth verse of chapter 1 what the apostle's purpose was. He said, For this cause I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are wanting, or as the New King James translates it, lacking, and ordain elders, presbuteros, in every city as I had appointed thee. Let's observe a few things about that verse. In terms of ordaining elders in every city, clearly he means those cities on the island of Crete within which there were churches. He's not obviously stating just pick any city and put a pastor there on the street corner, as it were. I mean, it's a nice idea, but you would really ordain an evangelist in that situation. He's saying ordain pastors, elders in the churches. And why would that be necessary? Because there are things that are lacking There are things that these churches yet need. 
for one reason or another, which we've already effectively stated, and I will state again, but I leave it for your minds to ponder, to see if your minds yet very quickly arrive at what the core of the need is. You get a good hint toward what that need is when Paul says, I left you in Crete so that you can set in order. Certainly we should understand by order, divine order. The apostle is one who's sent from God. He has the authority of God behind him and he is delegating Titus and thereby delegating an authority to Titus saying, I'm sending you or leaving you in Crete so that you will set in order, not the entire island, not the politics of Crete, not even directly the families that are in Crete, but particularly to set in order the churches that are in the various cities within Crete. Set them in divine order because presently there are things that are out of divine order. And what you'll notice is the ordaining of elders is a further divine instrument toward the end of accomplishing that very thing that we've just expressed. That is to say, the Apostle Paul, who is sent from Almighty God, sends Titus as his representative. Titus is now going to ordain elders, not for any non-described reason, but so that the elders can then carry out the responsibility of setting these churches in order because there are things that are lacking. We will look in some detail about the description of the things that are lacking, but we know what it all amounts to. What they are lacking is a full, bright, glorious, and complete manifestation of Jesus and his life and his ways and his truth and his character. For a Christian church exists for no other fundamental reason except to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ and to learn and manifest his ways in the earth. And so I'm stressing that you're seeing in the fifth verse, and it will be confirmed in verses 6 through 9, that God ordains elders, he ordains leadership within churches, and they have a calling from Almighty God to put things in divine order. That's why, while we will get to, as it were, the rest of the membership in chapter 2, and the various needs that they collectively have, the various members within the Christian churches in Crete, you will see, we'll pick up their various responsibilities in chapter 2, But toward the objective of getting the churches in Crete into divine order, first, there was a need to have qualified pastors, qualified overseers. This is how God's divine order works. And I'd like you to see what the list of qualifications that these elders are to meet, what the last qualification entails. You'll find it in the ninth verse of Titus chapter 1. We read that this man who would hold a position within these churches, a functional position, 
He represents Jesus Christ. He is not a Lord over the flock. He's to be an example, but he has divine authority. And he has a number of serious qualifications that anyone can examine with an honest heart and assess as to whether or not he meets these qualifications. And if God so supplies to these churches the gift of a qualified man, he is there not just to answer your phone calls, not just to read the scriptures, not just to instruct you about the details of some biblical topic you're studying, but he is there as well to set in order the things that are lacking. And in order for him to do that successfully, we are told in verse 9, he must be able to hold fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. Permit me to read this in the English Standard Version. The same verse is translated with slightly different English terminology and perhaps will register in your minds in a way that it's stirring. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. Therefore, he must be a man of the word. He must have availed himself of teaching. He must be open to mentoring, to being instructed himself and recognizing that he is not to make this up as he goes, as it were. You see, he must hold firm to a trustworthy word that preceded him, that he was taught. He must value it, understand it, appreciate it, and hold fast to it so that he may have the ability. Indeed, the elders, the pastors, they have to have an ability to teach. You'll read that in 1 Timothy chapter 3, but you see it stated here. He has to have an understanding of the word, an understanding of doctrine, so that he has the ability to give instruction, as the ESV goes on to say, in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Now, I want to draw your attention to the phrase sound doctrine. Ente didaskaleia te hugia nuse. If you recall the pronunciation that I've just given you in the Greek, when we get to chapter 2, you will see the relevance of making that observation. This idea of sound doctrine is something that you're reading, whether you fully understand its implications yet, but you are reading in verse 9 that an elder must comprehend what sound doctrine doctrine entails, and he must embrace it so that he can instruct the church, and hopefully they receive the word with meekness, That's word that is able to save their soul. They lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness, as James says in the King James Version. That is an excessive pulsation of the flesh. James says, lay it aside and receive with meekness this engrafted word, which is able to save your soul. And so if a qualified elder is able to 
teach and understands what sound doctrine is and what it entails and why it's there, then he can bring sound doctrine to the hearts of those who are a part of the meeting. And if they have a receptive heart, then in a very sort of natural way, though certainly we have to receive the word and allow it to have its work, but there is a healthy process that is undergoing wherein our lives can be transformed into better and better health just because there's a minister who understands sound doctrine and why it's there and he's teaching it to the assembly. But it goes on to say, he may also have to rebuke those who contradict it. And the reason for that, we will be confirming more fully when we get to chapter 2, but in some respects, I would imagine it would be obvious The reason is, is how can the assembly be healthy? How can it manifest Jesus Christ in a beautiful, vibrant, shining, healthy way if it is not living in sound doctrine? Then Paul enlarges upon why this pastoral duty is so critical. After what he already stated in verse 9, we read in verse 10, that the possibility of false teachers is very real. You might think if you were a church on the island of Crete, some hundred miles off the southern tip of Greece in the Mediterranean Sea, maybe you'd be safe from these sorts of annoyances. But we all know that that's not the case. Wherever Jesus is found, the devil is going to be there to contest it if he can. He will certainly put up a fight. But we thank God that our Lord Jesus is the victor. But Paul does state in verse 10, he says, there are many. He doesn't say a few. Mark that. It doesn't mean that there always have to be many, but let's read our Bibles and be men and women of the word and courageous and take it for what it's saying. He says there are many unruly. The ESV has insubordinate because that is very true to the Greek term. There are many unruly or insubordinate and vain or empty talkers and deceivers, especially they of the circumcision. Look what he says in verse 11. It is the pastor's responsibility given to him through the instrument of an understudy of an apostle named Titus, ultimately given from the apostle who is writing these very words, And the apostle represents Almighty God. Divine order requires in certain circumstances. And sometimes they can be multiplied because he says there are many who are insubordinate and empty talkers. And as a result, they are deceivers. That is to the extent that anyone listens to their vain talk. And he says there's a special class of them that Paul was acquainted with, namely they of the circumcision, he says their mouths must be stopped. Why? Because they turn entire houses. That's what the Greek means. Anatrepo. It means to turn. They subvert or they turn entire houses, teaching things that are not true, teaching things which they ought not. King James says, for filthy lucre's sake, But the idea, according to other translations and by virtue of the text, seems to imply more just the general concept of personal gain for their own self-interests. Say, for example, 
what the ESV states. We can take as an example what the ESV translates this verse with. Upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not. The NIV translates those words in this way. Disrupting whole households. Another translation translates it as they mislead whole families. Now, this phenomenon was not unique to the churches on the island of Crete. We won't run all the texts that speak to this problem that are found in the New Testament, but I'll remind you of a couple. For example, with respect to the church in Rome, toward the end of that epistle, in the 16th chapter, Paul says in the 17th verse, Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses, contrary to the teaching which you have learned from your leaders and your pastors, and avoid them. For they that are such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ. They aren't serving the common cause of the church and centering things toward the Lord Jesus and just simply interested in the glory of Christ, which is what the church is to be all about. He says they're not serving the Lord Jesus. They're serving their own self-interest. They're serving their own belly. Nonetheless, they can sometimes give good words and fair speeches and deceive the hearts of the less discerning. Now, with respect to more precisely what he's warning against here, I think it's useful to observe that the word translated divisions, there in the 17th verse, is from a Greek term that is compound, and the prefix is duo, and is attached to a stem, or to another Greek word, which is istemi. And it means to have two standings. So the idea here is, as would seem logical with divisions, it means that there's an advocacy of two different ways of doing things. That's precisely what he's talking about. There are other terms for division in Greek. This one is specifically speaking about those who put forth a standing that is separate than what the God-appointed leadership over the particular assembly is advocating. And then he goes on to say, and offenses. The Greek there is skandalon. And I won't get into thinking through what those implications are in this study here, but they obviously are things that disrupt and complicate and become, as it were, spiritual road bumps for the progress of the church. And then I would add Paul's remarks to the Ephesian elders as they are given to us in Acts chapter 20. When Paul was returning from his third missionary journey, he stopped off at a place called Miletus, which is about 45 miles south of Ephesus on the western coast of Asia Minor. And he invited the Ephesian elders to meet him because he wanted to speak to them and charge them, as he did under God with a degree of authority, incidentally, but an authority that was interested in the health of God's churches. So we read in verse 26, though the speech is longer than this, and I recommend it to you in its entirety, but I will begin in verse 26. Paul says, Wherefore, 
Because I've been faithful in my ministry is effectively what he's saying. Wherefore, I take you to record this day that I am pure from the blood of all men. I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock. By the way, would you mark that down in your Bibles? You don't necessarily have to mark up your Bibles. That's up to you whether you want to highlight or not. But he says to the pastors, Take heed therefore to yourself and to everyone in the flock. That means the pastor does have the responsibility and the liberty, if you will, the obligation, the freedom to address any particular member in the flock. And for anyone to argue otherwise and say, you can't talk to my wife, you can't talk to my daughter, you can't talk to my son, because I'm the one who is overseeing that life, does not know what the Word of God teaches. I hope you see that. All the flock over which the Holy Spirit has made you the overseer to feed the assembly of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departing, when there's distance between the Apostle Paul, in this case, one of God's ministers, and a work that he himself was instrumental in nurturing and developing, but nonetheless, he says, though I've been here, Weeping and warning for years, I know that when some distance occurs between myself and your life, grievous wolves will enter in among you, not sparing the flock, not loving and caring for the flock. Indeed, also after of or of your own selves shall men arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples After them, therefore watch and remember that by the space of three years, I ceased not to warn everyone night and day with tears. Those are a couple of other locations where the authority of the leadership was needed in order to stop mouths who would subvert whole houses, whether families or churches as constituting these houses. Going back to the letter to Titus, we then learn, having followed about some whose mouths are to be stopped, we then learn that some of the many, he says there are many who are deceivers, some of the many are among the Cretan church members. Verse 12 says, one of themselves... One of the Cretans, even a prophet of their own, a certain Epimenides of the 6th century B.C. This is to whom this remark can be traced back to. And Paul is quoting him. He's not alive now, but he's doing it on purpose because the Cretans would know of this Greek individual, a prophet that was once on Crete, not a Christian prophet, but someone who spoke with some degree of insight into the character traits of the Cretans. And that's what Paul's referring to. One of themselves, even a prophet of their own, said, the Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, slow bellies. This witness is true. Wherefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. 
Do you see the justification for why I'm saying that there wasn't just a generic need that Paul thought might possibly be the case with respect to these various churches on the island of Crete and their need to be set in divine order. It wasn't just that Paul posited in the generic that there are false teachers and some men's mouths must be stopped. Some people would subvert entire families or churches left to themselves. It's not just hypothetical. Because when he goes on to draw into his comments that he's writing to Titus, but certainly anticipating that Titus will take this information, will use it under God's direction, and likely repeat it back to some of the Cretans themselves, he gathers this quotation, and then he says, rebuke them. And he certainly isn't talking again about the general populace, that lives on the island of Crete. He's talking about the members of the churches. And it's not appropriate to rebuke them about these things if they're not guilty of it. But because the witness is true, and Paul's observation that it is true does not make him unkind, unloving, authoritarian. It makes him a faithful representative of God who understands what sound Christian living looks like and their lives are not replicating that, and we exist not to just please ourselves, but to manifest the glories of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, he says, rebuke them sharply, that they might be, here's the language, in the Greek, sound. Same idea. Healthy in the faith. You know, as it relates to the Cretans, there was a proverb that went like this, they would say, you're playing the Cretan, and you wouldn't have to be on the island of Crete to get that said to you. You could be on Asia Minor, you could be in Rome, they say, stop playing the Cretan. Cretizo would be the Greek. What it's talking about is you're a liar. You see what we just read to you? He said, one of their own said, the Cretans are always liars. The reputation of the Cretans being liars, was so strong and so baked into that Mediterranean world that they had a saying for it. Playing the Cretan was to be a liar. And so you see, brothers and sisters, when God redeems our lives, we come out of the culture. We come out of family backgrounds. We come out of our own sinful habits. And there are things that need to be straightened out. Sometimes they're really deep, but we have to let the preaching and ministry of God's word reach our hearts where the witness is true as it relates to if something were to be said. You know, the Smiths are always this way, something to that effect. We need to let that word come to our lives and change the way we live. One of the things that was said of the Cretans is that their slow bellies Another translation says they're lazy gluttons. You know what that refers to? It refers to they spend more time fattening themselves up than they do living for Christ and modeling what a responsible life should look like. Now, is that picking on the Cretan churches? Well, it isn't if it's made up of individuals who long with all their heart to glorify Christ 
and they have a confidence that their good shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ, will ordain godly men over their lives who will teach them what a sound Christian life looks like and won't bring them under the law and won't beat them with the shepherd's staff, but will guide them and help to shape them, if you will, maybe shape these lazy gluttons into a better witness ultimately. And so that's what we read there. Titus chapter 1 ends with a summary description of the Cretan contagion. The spiritual sickness that wasn't in every single member, we certainly hope, but it was that thing that Paul knew needed to be addressed, which is why he left Titus there, whereas Titus could have been useful somewhere else, but he left him there to set into divine order substantial things that are lacking, that are missing, that are not right. And we get, as I say, a summary description of this in the 16th verse of chapter 1. What do we read there? We read, they profess that they know God, but in their actual behavior, they deny Him. They're not denying Jesus as being their Lord. They're not denying sound doctrine in terms of stating the doctrine in an orthodox manner with proper language and terminology. That's not what he's talking about, as we'll see if it's not clear to you already when we get to chapter 2. Indeed, the first part of this remark is confirming they profess that they know God. They have the right profession and statements, but in their actual behavior, they're denying the witness and life of Jesus Christ. They're denying Him. Being abominable or abhorrent and disobedient and onto every good work rejected, reprobate. What we have here is profession set over against practice or actions. And the apostle is effectively saying this needs to be set into divine order. This is not okay. For a Christian church to have the right confessional statements for you or me to be able to say the right things while attending what we say with our lips with practices that are contrary to sound doctrine, that is not okay. We have, secondly, generic good works set over against approved good works. Did you see that with me? And onto every good work reprobate. What this is speaking about is among the Cretan churches were individuals, very truthfully, who viewed themselves as doing good works, doing good things. They would point to aspects of their behavior and things that they do for the church, and they would say, well, this is good, and that is good, and this is good. And yet, Jesus would say to them, I reject all of it, because it's lacking important features of an overall life that truly brings forth the goodness of who Jesus is, as opposed to just an external formalism of something that might look externally like a good action, but it isn't pleasing to the Father. And lest you forget that this is a very, very serious concern, and any serious pastor will absolutely be keen to this need and will address it, 
I remind you of what Jesus says will occur at the judgment seat of Christ when he states in Matthew 7 and verse 22 and 23, he will be responding to some who will declare that after Jesus is manifesting disapproval to their lives and they're shocked, they will say, in your name, Jesus, in your name, with my own lips, I professed your name. And not only that, I did many wonderful things. And he will say, every one of those good works was reprobate. It means rejected. He says, I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, for all the good things you were doing were interlaced and coming from a heart that was simultaneously doing iniquity. So we come to chapter 2. And I want you to see that chapter 2 begins and ends with an imperative, a command. This is important because it sets up the seriousness of what this chapter is all about. And incidentally, it also shows you what God's directives are toward his ministry. You can read this as God's directive toward his ministry because the Apostle Paul is giving these directions to Titus. And then he is to give it to the elders. And then they are to function within these directives. So there are are a number of things that are said in the 15 verses that constitute Titus chapter 2. And I want you to hear that the first verse and the last verse comprises an imperative. It's in the Greek, it's in the imperative form. It's a command. And it sounds like this. Speak thou the things which become sound doctrine. We will look into what that implies Shortly, what is sound doctrine? What is his argument here? But leaving that aside for the moment, I want you to read and see with me that Paul from God is telling Titus, you are to speak these things. And you know with me, Titus is on the island of Crete. He might be stuck there. I'm kind of kidding, but I'm trying to make a point. He's on the island of Crete and there are absolutely needs In these churches, some mouths must be stopped. Some are in the process of subverting entire families, or maybe the concern is because whole houses could refer to churches because they met in houses. So it could be the concern they're going to subvert the entire church. And Titus has the responsibility that he can certainly delegate to elders as well. But under Paul, he's to oversee this. He has the responsibility to correct these things. And he is not given the option to find a boat if someone opposes him and just ship off somewhere else and take a vacation. He is commanded, speak the things which become sound doctrine. That's verse one. And then the last verse is also in the imperative, verse 15. After he said all the things that we will look at, not in their entirety in this study, but if the Lord allows in subsequent communion services, after he says all the things that are within chapter 2, between verse 2 and 14, he says, These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no man look down on you. Let no man despise you. It's actually perifroneo. That term, perifroneo, it literally translates, don't let anybody think around you. 
Now, that is certainly not saying don't let anybody other than you think. He's not saying anybody who's around you, tell them stop thinking. But it is saying when you have the word of God that you have been delegated to minister and to teach, do not let others try to argue their way around this sound doctrine and wiggle their way past you and tell stories and object and undermine up over your head, under your feet, around the left, around the right, or any other way. That's what he says. Let no man think around you. And so this command to speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority, if you understand the Bible well, you know that Entailed in that is always love and compassion and mercy and no flesh. But I suppose that if you're experiencing that as one who is out of order and needs to be corrected, you might feel like, well, that's authoritarian. That's too much authority. But such an individual fails to see that there's a directive from Almighty God. He says, these things you speak, you exhort. You rebuke with all authority. And what man of God, if he's a man of God, can tell God, no, I won't? Now, that is an abuse of authority. If you tell God, no, I won't. I want you to see that there is a heavenly motive for all of this. And it goes back to the title of the behavior of Christ's body. And this is really where that concept that we've already discussed primarily in last Sunday's teaching, but now we're talking about some of the needs in Crete. This is where it really starts to come into focus. It's in verse 1 that we just read, but we're going to do a little bit more work with what verse 1 is saying. Remember with me, before I get there, what the last description was touching the problem that is in some of the churches in Crete. What was it? They profess that they know God with their mouths. They have the right doctrine. They have the right sayings. But their lives are either not living out those very doctrines. So we sing, love is patient, love is kind, love suffers long and doesn't mind. Love does not envy, love does not boast, love isn't proud, love is not rude. We confess these things, but in works, we're not actually living them is what Paul is saying as it relates to the Cretans. So when we come to verse 1 of chapter 2, here's what he says. Speak thou the things which become sound doctrine. And here you have the same Greek setup. Te hugie nuse didaskaleia. And the lexical definition of the Greek term here that makes up that modifier sound, it means to be in good physical health, to be healthy. And what we're told in this verse is a very key term translated as become from the Greek word prepo. The Greek word prepo means that which is fitting, proper to, in agreement with. Indeed, the New King James translation picks up the concept of prepo and translates it this way. But speak thou the things which are proper for sound doctrine. And then I really like this translation from the New English translation, the NET Bible. It's 
communicate the behavior that goes with sound doctrine. It's going to be delineated in the following verses, starting with verse 2 and starting with the elder men. And he's going to start talking not about their Christology, not about their doctrine of reconciliation, not about their doctrine of how to water baptize, not to the elder men, not to the elder sisters, not to the young sisters or the young men. He's not going to be talking to them about their confession of faith as such, their doctrinal ideas. He is going to be talking to them about the things that must go with sound talk. That is to say, if you have the sound doctrine, that's not sufficient. You have to have character that goes along with this sound doctrine. So, for example, take something at random that comes to mind. Remember how Jesus responded to James and John when they were walking through Samaria and Jesus had set his face like a flint to the purpose of going to Jerusalem to fulfill the Father's will through his crucifixion and the fulfillment of our redemption. And John and James understood the doctrine about Jesus pretty well. In fact, it's because they understood who he was so well and knew that the Samaritans didn't that they then advocated the idea that we would call fire down from heaven on these Samaritans who were not receiving Jesus. And that was rather rude, by the way, that they didn't. That's true. But what Jesus is saying to James and John is, if you want to represent me, you're going to have to learn what manner of spirit you're of. It's not enough to have the right ideas. In order to manifest the life and character of Christ, we have to have the things that become sound doctrine. In other words... Have you accomplished some clarity in your Christian mind and the ideas that you have? That is a blessing. But do you recognize that perhaps even all the more now, lest you be someone who becomes somewhat of a deceiver, because with your lips you profess God, but in works you deny Him. And so it's very difficult for people to understand what Christianity really looks like. And they might think you're a pretty good Christian because you got your doctrine accurate, but you don't have a life and a character that becomes sound doctrine. You don't have a healthy Christian life attending your healthy Christian statements. It is also certainly the case that such an individual really doesn't understand these doctrinal statements in any great depth, as Jesus in Matthew seven twenty one clearly demonstrates, doesn't he? Imagine, he said it'll be many. Imagine people showing up thinking that they are right with God. And Jesus didn't say that they did not do many wonderful things in his name. But what he was saying is, effectively, I'll put it this way, you don't know the first thing about Christianity. Apparently they didn't because he says, I never knew you. And I think you get to know Jesus right away. When he becomes your savior, when he becomes your savior, you know that you were saved out of death, out of enmity, out of an absolutely messed up life. You are an entire project. Amen, brothers and sisters? It goes without saying, my life needs to be completely broken down in the language of Jeremiah 1.10 and then rebuilt, but broken down first. And it's the responsibility of the ministry to carry out much of that task. And so we can read these words from one commentator 
on Titus 2.1, Paul is anxious that everyone who professes Christian faith should allow the gospel to transform the whole, the entirety of his or her life so that the outward signs of the faith express a living reality that comes from the deepest parts of the personality. Amen, brothers and sisters. This is what the Spirit of God is seeking to do. This is what churches exist for, is to be taught clear, true teaching. But the idea of this sound doctrine means that there's no such thing as good doctrine in God's mind when it's absent a developing and maturing and spiritually adorned life. In order for what I believe and teach to truly be seen as sound in God's eyes, I myself have to be increasing in spiritual health. Do you understand? My person, my character, my entire being has to be coming, has to be becoming into greater soundness overall. A Scottish minister by the name of David Campbell says, Titus is to teach them what is in accord with sound doctrine. We infer from this that doctrine and practice for a Christian are to keep in step with each other. Soundness in the faith is to be accompanied by a lifestyle that harmonizes with it. And Titus' responsibility is to spell out in detail what that means for the various groups in the church. And so I bring you to the various groups that are given to us in Titus chapter 2. I count six classes of Christian converts. Some other expositors count five. I'll explain to you why the difference is. It's not a big deal. When I get to it, I'll explain to you why some see five categories where I see six. It doesn't matter. It gets to the same point at the end of the day. Again, we aren't going to be looking at all of the language in Titus 2 in detail this afternoon. Perhaps in subsequent communion Sunday teachings, we will continue to pick up these different classes. And why would we do that? Well, for many good reasons, but how about this? So that each of us, wherever we fit into these categories, God can address us and help bring our lives into soundness so that we can have a sound Christian testimony. In other words, a healthy I want to have a healthy personality. I want to have a healthy spirituality. I want to be a healthy husband to my wife. Not just someone who can tell her what Ephesians 5 says. I can say, you're to submit to me and I'm to, and I'm to love you. I've watched men do this. I counseled with a particular man for hours and hours along these lines. And he'd be the first one to tell you that his responsibilities are to love his wife. Then I could tell you the things that he actually does. And he doesn't see the disparity. And as a consequence, he's participating into subverting an entire home, his own. So first of all, aged men, older men, are addressed in verse 2. Though the term is presbutas, and could theoretically refer to someone in a leadership position, we know because of the second class that it's actually in parallel with just your age, because when the class of aged women is addressed, the term is presbutidas. It's the female form of that word. And that word doesn't have to designate 
a leadership position per se. The word presbutas can simply refer to an older man. I hope that's clear. So the first class is not someone who's necessarily in the ministry. I mean, the man may be also in the ministry, and he still has these responsibilities. In fact, he has to go over to chapter 1 first and meet those qualifications. But verse 2, we have the older, older men. Here, I'm just going to read you, as I give you the, these different classes, some of the things that are said that they need to have as a part of their character. And... Um, we can certainly say that this is Christian teaching, and it absolutely is. In other words, when I'm teaching about how we are to live in our character, I'm still teaching Christian doctrine. I might not be looking into the finer points of the union of the divine logos with human nature, you know, getting into technical, you know, terminology of usia and all the rest of it. You follow what I'm saying? But... This is teaching, and the nature of how we conduct ourselves is fair play in a Christian church because there's teaching about everything you do as well as your conduct. So with the aged men, they are said to be sober. They must be sober, grave, temperate, sound in the faith, in charity, and in endurance. The second Category is aged women. That's in verse 3. You see, the aged women, likewise, they are that they be in behavior as becometh holiness. Older women should have a character of holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things. The third category is young women, verses 4 and 5. Young women, according to verse 4, are to be sober to love their own husbands, to love their children. They are to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands. Then we have the category of young men. Verse 6, young men likewise exhort to be sober-minded. And then we have, beginning in verse 7, what I see as another category, but many expositors join what is said in verse 7 with what is said in verse 6, and is, is reading it as Titus himself is a young man. And so he is subsumed under the category of a young man, if you follow that thinking. And that's perfectly fine. I mean, we can certainly read it that way. Um, I'm looking at it a little bit differently and saying that the man who is delivering these exhortations must himself be mindful of his life. So he is a category separate from everybody else, if you follow what I'm saying. It's the idea that, Titus, you're to address these different categories, and you're going to fit into one or the other. You're an older brother or an older sister. You're a younger sister or a young man. And Titus is to address all of these individuals. And to me, when he gets to verse 7, and Paul says, in all things, showing yourself a pattern of good works, in doctrine, showing uncorruptness, gravity, sincerity, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that 
He that is of the contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing to say of you. I'm suggesting we can think of it as, so for example, an older woman could be exhorting a younger woman. And she should see that not only must she be thoughtful about what she should be as an older woman, as already given to her in verse 3, but there's a sense in which you can reinforce, now that you're taking up what might be a perfectly legitimate and loving responsibility, and we certainly advocate it under proper qualifications, that is to say, love and kindness and prayerfulness, but nonetheless, we need this in the churches of Jesus Christ, the ability to lovingly exhort one another and so much the more as we see the day approaching onto love and to good works and soundness of life, coming along one another and saying, brother, sister, Seems maybe you're struggling in this matter and we love you and we want to see you do well. How can we help you? Or may I suggest this? And I'm obviously not transposing into a counseling mode here from the pulpit, but I'm saying there's ways of lovingly guiding and exhorting each other to soundness of life so that we adorn this gospel and don't just spout doctrinal statements that might be true as such. And again, I'm just stressing that Maybe it is the right way to read it that Titus is just an example of a young man. He's not a separate category. But I'm suggesting you can think of him as filling the category of the one who is actually giving the exhortations. And Paul is saying, if you're going to be giving the exhortations, then add a double dose back on yourself and make sure that you're showing a pattern of good works. Because there's something inordinate, something perverse about an individual who's giving instructions to others while he or she, him or herself, are palpably denying the very things that they are advocating. And then, depending on how you're counting, so if, if verse 7 and 8 is another category, that category is yourself, okay? The one giving the exhortation, that's a fifth category, if, if you're making that separate. And then the last one, is given to us in verse 9 and 10, and that's slaves. He says, exhort servants or slaves to be obedient unto their own masters and to please them well in all things. Not answering again. It's an interesting idea, isn't it? Not purloining, but showing all good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. So there you have it. Six Categories within which Christian peoples may find themselves within, I think we could increase the number of categories if necessary. In our own culture, in our own time, we might need to address divorcees, for example. They might have a special set of needs, not to malign your spouse or something. I don't know. You know, because of the prevalence of divorce is what I'm saying. We, we don't have the prevalence of overt slavery, but we might have our own unique categories that nonetheless have to be addressed because life is difficult. Are you following what I'm saying? And, and yet, as a Christian, even if you were a Christian slave, you are to manifest behavior that adorns the gospel that you're professing with your lips. And so as a matter of fact, I want to give you the specific language that is attached to three of these categories that we just looked at, which explains why this is so critical, and it buttresses 
And it pleads the case that this study is built upon. It pleads the case that we represent Jesus. And so our behavior becomes the behavior of Christ's body for good or bad, depending on how we're actually living. And so while what I'm about to show you is stated with reference to just three of the six categories, nonetheless, you will see with me that the same concept can be applied to every single category and therefore to every one of our lives. So take what is associated with the directives to young women. Going back to verse 5. Young women are to be discreet. They are, be, they are to be chaste. They are to be keepers at home. They are to be good. They are to be obedient to their own husbands. What is that speaking about? Their doctrinal confession? Not really. Not even really close. It's talking about their behavior. It's talking about how they conduct themselves how they actually live, how they interact with their husbands and with other people in the church. They're to be chaste and keepers at home. They're to be good. And we are told the reason why. So that the word of God be not blasphemed. In other words, these young women are a part of a church where the word is preached, where a faithful pastor is giving the word of the Lord regularly. And as a consequence, people's minds are being filled with sound doctrine in terms of the right ideas. And they go back to their homes with these ideas in their minds. These young women do, for example. They go back into the community, into their neighborhoods. Maybe they had some, some job somewhere, washing clothes or whatever they might have been doing, dyeing clothes in purple, for example, like Lydia. And they're going out into these various situations. And with respect to the sisters, if they're going out into these situations and they have all the right ideas, but they're not discreet, they're not chaste, they wander around and they don't, they don't find happiness in their homes, they're not obedient to their own husbands, then what happens is we don't have the things that become sound doctrine. There are things that must be associated with sound doctrine, namely the health of our total Christian witness, the health of who we are personally. And dear brother or sister, whether you're old or young, male or female, bond or free, do you understand that both from the Apostle Paul and then through Titus and then through the elders and by extension through myself, that none of these concerns are a denunciation of anybody's life. In other words, what I'm saying is, suppose there was a young woman who hadn't fully developed the habits of chasteness. She didn't know what that looked like. She wasn't intending to be a flirt, but she has those tendencies because of the culture she came out of, or maybe personality weaknesses in her own soul. Nonetheless, the fact remains as it stands that her conduct is blaspheming the word of God because she stands as a Christian. She says certain things about Christian behavior, but her lifestyle is actually not adorning that gospel with a beautiful, sound and healthy testimony. And therefore, 
It is right that in the church of Jesus Christ, whether it's directly through the pastor or maybe an older sister comes alongside of this young woman and begins to speak to her life and to nurture and mentor her, to teach her principles, give her an Elizabeth Elliot book or some such thing, hook her up with Nancy Leigh DeMoss or some other means, you know what I'm trying to say, to help her to learn what it is to be a healthy young Christian woman. Why? in order to dominate her life, in order to make her sad and put legalism all over her? No, because we are the body of Christ. Do you understand what I'm saying? And members in particular, and the sum total representation of ourselves as a church to the glories of the Lord Jesus Christ is made up in part of how that young sister lives her life. And so if... The whole body comes together here. Imagine such an idea. The older men, they really pursue all the characteristics that should adorn themselves. The the older women, the young men, the young women in any class you find yourself, even if you were a slave, and everybody is striving to bring together behavior that is becoming to a church that actually has sound doctrine, but we care about the behavior as well. Then when someone comes into such a meeting or someone learns about such a church, they are so deeply impressed and really the Holy Spirit is there to make that light shine, dear brothers and sisters. And that's what we're talking about. And so if we come to what Paul says about Titus, in other words, one of the young men or the category of the one who happens to be communicating the exhortations at the moment. In verse 8, he says, make sure that you have sound speech. So in other words, how you go about this, how you go about bringing the exhortations to the older men or to the young uh, or, or to the older women or to the young women or the young men. I mean, this would be part of what constitutes sound speech. You follow what I'm saying? Our, our speech needs to be sound across the board, but he's saying to Titus, Titus, one of the very important places where you have to have sound speech is when you're bringing this correction. When you're, as he says, rebuke them sharply because this witness is true. When Titus is carrying out these obligations, he has to do it with sound speech. He can't, he can't roll over into the flesh and get angry and vicious and that sort of a thing. There is a way of speaking firmly, exhorting with all long-suffering and doctrine, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that he which is of the contrary part may be ashamed, having no true evil thing to save you. There's no recording of you swearing at him, not just a recording, but in the personal interactions. Especially, hopefully, when there's other witnesses. I mean, the reality is, anyone who's been in ministry as long as I have, you know that people can say you were mean and you were nasty or whatever. But if you have the benefit of other witnesses, a lot of that is context, friends. It's like, you know, it boils down to you didn't like what I was saying, perhaps, at that moment. Which is not to say that a man in the flesh cannot be mean and nasty. And it's not to say that I've never been mean and nasty. That's, that's not what I'm stating, But I am saying something very pertinent and good for churches to hear, good for pastors elsewhere to hear, 
to know that this pastor supports them when you need to address these matters and you need to do it firmly. And sometimes there's a true witness, meaning there's some really egregious behavior and you are to rebuke it sharply with the hopes that we can come to soundness in the faith. Let's get these lives healthy because they're not healthy. There's a sickness and it needs to be healed spiritually. That's what Paul told Titus to do. And he needs to do it in such a way so at the end of the day, no one can honestly say something evil about how you went about it. Then as it relates to servants, verse 10, there also is a purpose associated to what they are instructed to do, how they are to live. Um, you know, in other words, Titus is to instruct servants to live in a certain way for this purpose. So he says, not purloining, but showing all good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. Dear brothers and sisters, what I think we're going to do here is more or less close with these set of observations. And as I stated in subsequent communion services, we'll pick this up again and build on it. I hope we can have that agreement. Because as a matter of fact, I'm not quite covering the material as, as rapidly as I thought I might. But I want to just close by observing this beautiful idea that even the slaves who are in a most difficult configuration, aren't they? In many respects, it's definitionally unjust. I mean, they may have sold themselves within that culture into an indentured arrangement, and that isn't really unjust per se, in my mind. I mean, you could talk about a broader economic um, philosophy as to whether the economics of the culture are unjust, and I'm not debating that. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm saying if these two individuals agreed, and that's the configuration as to how this person is in some form of servitude, it's still difficult, and there may be real situations where they're really slaves for all practical purposes. Slaves captured in war, for example, and within the Roman citizenry. But now they're converted and they're Christians. And I'm saying they're in an unjust arrangement, but they're told, don't answer again. Don't speak back to the one who is in authority over you. Now, dear brothers and sisters, we don't have to get silly about this or silly about anything, do we? Meaning, is Paul saying they can never ask a question? Is Paul saying they can never even express their disagreement? Of course he isn't saying that. That's silly talk. Amen? What he's saying is, when there's a contest between authority, and when your master has effectively said, this is the way we're doing it, he is saying, stop arguing with them. Because that's not what Jesus would have you do. That's not what a Christian would manifest. That's what he's saying. And he's saying to servants who are in a most difficult situation, you need to get this behavior right. If you're going to be in this church, if you're going to take up the teaching of Jesus Christ on your lips and tell people about this beautiful doctrine, you have to have a life and a conduct that is fitting, that is becoming, that is associated and harmonized with sound doctrine. You need to have a healthy Christian witness. Amen? You need to have happiness and joy in its appropriate manifestations. And in all of these situations, that also comes into play, if you're understanding what I'm meaning. 
Not doing it because you're forced to. You hearing what I'm saying? Do it with happiness and joy. Why? Because you're adorning the doctrine of God your Savior. And the churches of Jesus Christ and the members thereof should be gathering each Sunday with a deep earnest in their hearts that they might learn how better to adorn the teaching that God has given us, the gospel that we want to share. I want to come to these various needy souls within my family, within the church, within my neighborhood, within my community. And I want to bring a very wholesome, whole, healthy life. And dear brothers and sisters, that doesn't happen with the snap of a finger. That happens after a period of time of the washing of the water of the word of hearing good teaching that addresses the weaknesses in your life and many times saying, oh me, this is hard and repenting and crying and weeping and coming before the assembly and confessing your faults one to another and praying one for another that you might be healed, certainly physically, but also just heal me. I've got this problem has been for generations. I want to be healed so that I can help this body manifest Jesus Christ, because I know the body is one, but it has many members, and I'm one of those members. And when you put all these members together, 1 Corinthians 12 says, for that location, you know what? That's Christ. That's Christ for that community. And Christians should want to glorify their Lord Jesus as healthfully as they possibly can. Stand with me and we'll have the communion of the bread and cup. And that'll be our study for today, dear brethren.